Hi everyone, and welcome to Frazz's Capital Podcast. In this episode, we feature a conversation with Michael Wayne, the founder of Medallion. His firm offers wealth management and investment advice to a select number of clients. Michael is a widely respected commentator, and you may have seen him on Sky News or Livewire. Michael shares some investment ideas, some thoughts on markets, and in biotech land, we discuss the failure of Biogen's latest Alzheimer's trial. I hope you enjoy. Hi, Michael. How's it going? Yeah, good. Good. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. So why don't you tell us a bit about Medallion and what you're up to? Yeah, so Medallion, we're a private wealth advisory firm. So we differ to, to Fraser's partners in that each client has their own segregated account when they invest in equities as opposed to sort of pooling their money altogether. So basically, we focus on the Australian equity markets primarily, um, ASX 300. Majority of our clients are self-managed super funds, quite conservative in nature. So we're not really involved in IPOs or corporate finance, any of that more risky sort of stuff. But essentially, the way that we invest is that we take a top-down, bottom-up investment approach. We look to identify sectors of the economy that are booming, have a bright outlook, and then look to try and look at the bottom-up sort of stuff, look for the businesses that have very high-quality fundamentals. So things like consistent earnings and revenue growth, constant or growing margins, high return on equity, low levels of debt. That's the way we go about the market because a lot of clients that we deal with, particularly in Australia, they're very overexposed to the banking sector, the mining sector, or the energy space. So we try and bring a few of these emerging leaders in the mid-cap space to clients that can help add some value to their portfolio. Right. So it's in your portfolios, you'll pick individual stocks for them. And it's roughly a similar portfolio for each client. Yeah, well, look, I mean, there's two different types of clients. You get the clients that come across from existing relationships where they've got pre-existing positions and they'll come across and we'll gradually rework things to our way of thinking over time. But then you've got clients that start with cash and that way we can start things off along our lines of strategy. Each client is different. Obviously, you've got older clients who are more income focused and looking to lower their risk. And then you've got some younger clients that are looking to drive growth. But ultimately, the way we go about picking companies uh, is the same. But when it comes to international exposure, um, we tend to be quite a smaller operation. So we've got a small team that can't really cover a huge investment universe. So we use international specialists or ETFs to get exposure to those overseas markets, whether that's emerging markets, US or Europe. Right. And what are the, uh, what are the kind of mid-cap emerging companies that you're looking at on the SX at the moment? Do you have any hot tips for us? <laughs> well, it's become a little bit more difficult um, after the big run-up that we've had. I mean, once upon a time, our go-to sectors were healthcare, uh, the IT space, and they have run hard. And some of the key names that we've had success with in the past are your, your Altiums, your ProMedicus. What does ProMedicus do? I'm not familiar so with that one. ProMedicus is a bit of a hybrid um, across the, the IT space and the healthcare space. They're involved in imaging, and providing software services that can download very heavy, deep type of images. So if you think about going for a, a CAT scan, for instance, this enables doctors to pass on that information or, or that those images to clients or other doctors, et cetera. So it's a, a very interesting business. Um, they're starting to win a lot of, of contracts in that medical space, but practitioners by nature tend to be quite conservative and it takes a long time for the take-up in the medical industry to pick up, um, despite the fact that the technology's been proven and, and been quite lucrative for them. 
Right. So they've got a lot of good revenue momentum. And- a lot of good revenue momentum, a lot of good contracts, good margins. They've basically made the, made the transition from being a loss-making company to a, a profitable business. Um, and I think people have jumped on that fact. There are, relatively speaking, compared to, say, some of the US tech companies, very, very small. But nevertheless, their, their fundamentals and the balance sheet are quite good. I mean, another company that we're looking at at the moment um, is Aristocrat. Um, so many people will be familiar with Aristocrat as the pokey machine company, but this is a business that's come back a long way in price, uh, trades on about 20 times earnings. It's growing its revenue 25%, its earnings 15%. But what attracts us most to this business at the moment is the fact they're moving into the digital and online gaming space, the social casinos, um, as well as just social gaming in general. So they're a small player in what's quite a big market, but they're taking market share. And we think that's something to, to look out for. What's that social gaming? So is that on social platforms or is that gaming with well, it, added social features? It's, it's meta gaming. I think it's Fortnite has been one of the big right. things for them. It's not just what you would assume Aristocrat to be involved in with casinos and stuff. It's, it's actually gaming. So a lot of that's interacting with other people over the internet and, and that sort of thing. So interesting business that is sort of looking to diversify away from their, their, their traditional business, which was poker machines, um, and they're increasing their recurring revenue as they move more into this social gaming space. Interesting. So given the amount of equity volatility there's been, how are you positioning for that? Are you looking at other asset classes? Are you putting them in bonds? Well, well our, our area of expertise or area of focus is primarily equities. But in times of turbulence or when valuations are looking a little bit frothy and after big run-ups like we've seen in the last couple of months, we do turn to cash. So at the moment, many of our clients would be holding anywhere between 15 to 30% cash. That way, we've got a bit of ammo up our sleeve, potentially, if the market does have another schism like we saw at the back end of, of 2018. But what we're finding is as bond yields have come down, as interest rates have, have fallen, investors are desperate for, for income and desperate for cash. So we're finding a lot of interest for some of these listed investment trusts in the fixed income space that have been coming to market because for not too much extra risk, you can essentially double your income in many situations. So if you think about equities as being 10 out of 10 risky, term deposits one out of 10 risky, you can get many of these listed investment trusts that are probably three out of 10 or four or five out of 10 risky so many clients at the moment where we are looking to position them in more conservative assets uh, that do produce a little bit more income than what they're getting from their term deposits or their bank accounts. Right. Would they be credit, government bonds, those kind of things, or is it more like dividend-paying stocks, low volatility? No, but these tend to be credit um, and fixed income, and there are different types of ETFs and listed investment companies on the market that offer you different exposures. So obviously you've got your, your treasuries, um, which is sort of your lowest risk fixed income instruments, and you've got your corporate credit or corporate debt, whether that be domestic or overseas. And then you've got your, your hybrids, which are slightly higher risk again, um, as well as some more risky types of credit instruments that are on the market. But then again, you can get pure ETFs that focus on emerging markets, high yield. You've got ETFs that focus on US corporate credit. So there are a lot of options starting to come to the market because historically, Australia has been pretty narrow. In this area, um, and I think we're starting to see more and more demand and more and more awareness come into that space. Yeah, I mean, one thing that I find quite interesting is how well, you know, US government debt performs in any kind of times of crisis. I mean, the financial crisis, if you invested in US government bonds in, say, 2007, you're 30%. 
potentially 50% if you went out longer duration assets. I mean, that's something with no, you know, no default risk, something paying a solid yield and something you can just hold until the inevitable happens and there's a recession and rates cut across the board. It's a really interesting asset class, actually. If you think about it, it's typically money flows from the government to treasuries and then slowly down the risk curve, down into credit, into equities. When everybody panics, kind of the flow rapidly reverses. People pull money out of equities into corporate credit. People pull from corporate credit into treasuries. And the government panics because nobody wants that. So the government starts pushing the other way and starts pushing money back into treasuries. So that's literally quantitative easing and also effectively how they manage interest rates. So treasuries are kind of stuck in the middle in those times of crises with these huge forces pushing on both sides. It's really interesting how, you know, something with no, no equity or default risk can have such high returns at the most beneficial moments. Uh, so it's something we've been looking quite closely at as well. But I guess corporate credit doesn't quite have that effect. So do often you, do you corporate look at, credit will sell off. Do you look at treasuries from a, a pure exposure or do you look at the derivatives around that sort of thing when you look at them? Uh, well, I think the appeal is... The appeal of treasuries is that they're positive yielding. They're not going anywhere. You can buy them with cash. It's actually very low. It's extremely low volatility. So obviously there's, uh, there's plenty of macro funds that take huge leverage positions in treasuries. That's not really what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. You know, and like betting on different parts of the yield curve. It's literally just buying the asset with cash. You know, it's substantially less risk than equities. And to the extent there is res- risk, it's often negatively correlated with equities. So it's a very good offset. Um, many of the most successful strategies have actually utilized this. So Ray Dalio, all the, um, what do they call them? The risk parity strategies. So that'd be 50% long equities, 100% long bonds. But in the crisis, if your bonds are ripping 30% and you're 100% long that, and your equities drop 50%, so they're down 25 because you only put half your fund in that, you know, you're actually up in the bottom of the financial That's a crisis. Good point. Like that is a strong performance. And it's something, you know, he's had certain tailwinds. He's had tailwinds in the sense that, I'm talking about Ray Dalio, in the sense that, you know, interest rates have come down from 14% or whatever they were in the early 80s down to, you know, 2 3%. Yeah. But if you compare the US to where the Eurozone is now, and the Eurozone had a recession a few years ago and has never really recovered, it's always been tepid. I mean, the single best way to hedge against that or to prepare for that was to buy bonds. And even now they're just ripping hard. You know, they're ripping into negative rates. Um, people thought there'd be like a lower bound of zero, they couldn't go lower. And, in, you know, a number of a number of government bonds have sailed straight through that without even kind of blinking. But again, it's, it comes down to those two forces. Is the government pushing on one end, buying bonds to kind of like stimulate demand, and everybody else going, actually, I want to sell my equities, I'm selling my bonds, all I want is bonds, all I want is government debt that's secure. So when you look at the US debt, it's trading at 25 3%, there is a long way down from there kind of negative whatever rates. Yeah. So if you if you have a bearish view, I really think the best way to express it is in a positive yielding asset that has no default risk that you, you know, is tried and tested over centuries to perform extremely well. And if you go back to the depression, I mean, that was it was an extremely high performing asset then. Like that was that was something where almost nothing else would have worked. I mean you can you can try and go short, for example, but then you have to deal with these monster rallies in the middle of a bear market. I mean, some people think that's what we're in the middle of now, with equities up, you know, 15% or more off their lows. You know, it's very hard to short something like that, and you're paying carry to hold it, and you need to get your timing spot on, you know, within weeks. It's something that nobody can really do consistently. But if your strategy is to kind of hold treasuries, that is something you can just hold. And you have to mark to market small losses, at least getting pay, paying yield to cover those gaps. And sooner or later, when the cycle turns, you'll get all that money back and more. So it's just one of those interesting trades that we're looking at. Because obviously we've 
we've uh, reduced our exposures as well. So mm. we're sitting on more cash than we ever have actually. Just an interesting thought, like along yeah, those lines. No, very interesting to see it from your perspective. But, I mean, we're almost getting back to the point where, I mean, a few years ago we had 70% of the developed world's debt in negative territory. And yeah. Very, was that? that was 2016. That was 2016. So yeah. very quickly after everyone getting on the inflation bandwagon in the back end of 2018, people have reversed their positions, reversed their views, and everyone's now talking about interest rate cuts in the US and, and potentially even more quantitative easing or stimulus coming back to the eurozone. Um, so we're in interesting times again when it comes to credit markets. I heard um, that you had an interesting short this week. Uh, it's always interesting to get people's perspectives on what they don't like in the market. So yeah, well, go ahead and tell us what that was. Yeah, so I usually, I mean, shorting is a relatively small part of what I do and I rarely talk about it because it's something that, you know, most people are kind of trying to build businesses. They're trying to grow. They're trying to do good things. Generally, you want to be supporting people doing that. Um, occasionally, you see an opportunity that you know, it's very hard to ignore. So in this case, we were short Biogen, which is a big biotech company uh, in the US. And their share price soared about a year ago on the back of data that suggested one of their Alzheimer's drugs was going to succeed potentially in uh, treating people with early stage Alzheimer's. Basically, if you don't know anything about Alzheimer's, there's been a dominant hypothesis since the 80s, 1980s, that it's caused by these beta amyloid plaques. You know, it's apparently, if you dissect a brain, it's the first thing you see. It's uh, very obvious. It's almost it strongly correlates with Alzheimer's. What it doesn't, what has never been proven, is that it causes Alzheimer's. So because it's the, the dominant hypothesis that, you know, this beta amyloid causes the disease, every single trial, with a very few minor exceptions, is based on this science. I think we're up to, we're past 400 clinical trials that have failed with no measurable benefit many of which have actually cleared these plaques, cleared these tangles, but not actually resulted in anybody, anybody um, you know, acting or memorying anything better. You know, they haven't actually shown any clinical benefit at any stage. Now, the reason we thought it was so convincing was, firstly, I mean, this is something we discussed. I mean, I remember talking about this a decade ago at Oxford, how ridiculous it was that people were still doing trials on these drugs. And in the last few years, you can basically list all the major pharmaceutical companies. All of them had multi-billion dollar failures in this space. Uh, and they're still kind of flogging this dead horse. But in this case, it was particularly interesting because basically if you do a phase two trial, they're very hard to do. It's something like Alzheimer's, they take many years. So you generally have a small number, of pop, small number of patients. Now, if you cut that data, just through pure randomness, some sectors are going to do better than others. And this is like the classic biotech problem is if you have 100 people, there's almost certainly going to be a class of 10 people who maybe they're women over 60 or men under 40, or you know, there'll be some segment that shows some clinical benefit and it's without it actually being meaningful. So that's basically what happened with these guys. They basically said, look, some of the younger people seem to have done a lot better. We reckon we can, that's enough to push this through to phase three. Um, this is a drug that had failed that phase three, but provided just a hint of evidence for it to go forward. It was basically pure randomness. Uh, so the combination of that and this like multi-year, if not decade, thesis that we've had is that the dominant hypothesis is wrong, kind of led us to kind of bet against this trial. And I think in general, you know, Every trial that has taken this, this basic science as fact has failed. It's, kind of, it's, it's sad because this was, this was the only really live trial at the moment. Uh, it's, for people with late-stage Alzheimer's now, with the failure of this, it means that there'll probably be nothing in the next two to three years coming to market. But something has gone very, very wrong here. I think it's partly academic institutions. I'm not somebody to kind of throw rocks at glass houses. You know, I think if you, if you want to change a scientific paradigm, you have to do it from inside. There's plenty of crackpots who... 
you know, will very flippantly say, you know, academics don't know anything or they've got this wrong, that wrong. I'll just say in this case, there's hundreds of clinical trials that actually provide evidence that the hypothesis is wrong and it should be seen that way. But if you're an academic, let's say you want to get a PhD at a university studying Alzheimer's, you can't exactly propose, you know, a research topic that goes against all the tenets of the field. It's not really possible. You know, similarly, it's really hard to get a drug even to be considered for clinical trials. That takes a huge amount of, of work, a huge amount of business analysis. You have to convince, you know, large teams of people that it makes sense. And it's almost impossible to do that on something that's not the dominant hypothesis. There's been some structural reasons that, you know, for multiple decades, people keep pouring money at drugs that clear beta amyloid but don't cure Alzheimer's. So it's like extremely frustrating. And I say that in the context of, you know, it's also extremely uh, commendable that Biogen will risk billions of dollars treating an uncurable disease. You know, it's nothing against the motives. It's just perhaps it's one of those extremely rare occasions where as an outsider you can go, you guys have done hundreds of trials testing this and they've all failed. Not a single one has shown any benefit whatsoever. Perhaps that tenant is wrong. You know, so I think if there's future trials along these lines, we'll probably also initiate a quite small short. But we say that with like no joy. You know, it's not a it's not a happy moment Absolutely. when a drug fails. But um, how else do you look at short positions? Because often when you're looking for a good quality business, you're looking for certain balance sheet variables to be moving in the right direction. But often when people talk about shorting, the inverse isn't exactly true. So you can have a company that has a deteriorating balance sheet, sort of declining margins, declining earnings, yet it mightn't be a good short position. Do you agree with that? Or do you try and then pick holes in, a, in an established narrative like you did in this case? In general, you need... The shorts that I've done that have been successful have been extremely obvious in the sense the company was worth substantially less than zero. I think when you actually try this systematically, the costs to actually hold these positions are enormous. So let's say you're holding 20, 30% short to balance your 100% long equity book, which is, you know, often we've had that, a similar exposure to that. You know, you're paying the dividends on that 20 to 30%. You're paying borrow costs. You probably, you know, generally we've done quite well. We haven't like lost money on shorts uh, in a significant way, but you have to, you can get you can get two-thirds of your short calls right, but if one spikes, you have to get out because there's no way you can just run this exposure that could essentially go up, you know, three, four, five times. And the companies that you want to be short, they're the ones that do spike a lot because most people are in the same trade, you know, borrow cost is high. Yeah. You know, it's just, again, it comes back to that idea of how do you want to express your short? Like in many ways, in the markets, I think you're better holding cash at the moment and or treasuries, not credit, not anything else. Uh, in equities... It's very hard to find a way to express a short. I think the times that have worked best are when we've actually got the timing right as well, and that's been after a short squeeze. So if you know something like, say, Sears is going down, you know, there's no residual value in that equity there, or maybe it's a shipping company with preferred stock that will soak up any value, if any, that's left. You know, in those cases, you know the equity is worth nothing, but it's trading with like option value, and like a lot of people are short. If it moves up, it's going to rip. If you if you're watching these things, you can wait until that happens and wait until that kind of buying subsides. But even the- then, you know, you can get these things wrong and it's you can't make that much money out of them. Your positions have to be very small. So if you're right, you're talking about 20, 30, 40 basis point profit max and a huge amount of work, energy and attention. Broadly, we think you're better off just holding cash, actually. And on the flip side, when you see a company is heavily shorted and as we discussed, the natural inertia of the market is to move higher, do you then look at those positions as potential longs because you might get those big oversized short covering rallies. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, our, our two highest conviction positions over the last couple of years were Afterpay 
And that worked out very well. We bought that at $4. And it was, as our conviction was building, so was the short interest. So every time that started moving up, the, the moves were explosive. It's like you can't believe it's moved that far. But every time people just had to buy back their shorts. So if you can see something with high short interest, it's amazing. You know, our number one uh, long position now is Carvana, which I wrote about in a letter. I think I discussed in a podcast as well. But that, again, has, you know, huge short interest on the flow. So if you can find a situation where you're long something where everybody else is facing the other way, if you know that you don't need a catalyst, you know, as soon as it rises more than 1% or 2%, everybody with a risk management process has to mechanically buy it back. And in this case, it's, you know, it's over 50% of the free float. So, again, we found the moves have been quite explosive on the outside. But obviously you have to be right because that means there is a bear case and you have to really understand why people are thinking. I mean, do you do any of that yourself? I mean, we don't short positions. We are long-only managers in that sense, but we definitely monitor businesses that are amongst the most shorted on the index because often if you can pick one of these companies, these businesses, they don't have to come out with results that go over and above market expectations. They merely just have to do okay, and then often you'll start to see that the narrative will turn from being very, very negative to all of a sudden people doubting themselves, and you can get these very large moves. But um, off the top of my head, I can't think of anything at the moment that's amongst the most shorted. But but in the past, we certainly have. There's been things like Ramsey Healthcare, I think, was amongst the most shorted there at some point in time. How's um, that gone recently? Do you know? I haven't looked at yeah, that. Yeah, Ramsey Healthcare. Look, the, the narrative is, is negative in that private health insurance premiums are under pressure. Um, and if private health insurance premiums are under pressure because no one's taking up private health insurance or not as many people as the government would like, are taking up private private health insurance, the private insurers then go back to the private hospitals and they try and get their costs down. So that was playing in to be quite negative for Ramsey there for some time, but the most recent set of results was okay. And they've seen some improvements as well with their foray into Europe, which was struggling for a period of time as well. It's not one that we own at the moment for clients. It's one we've held in the past. But despite all the negative sentiment and all the negative media coverage, it's actually performed quite well and isn't too far off at its all-time highs. Right. I mean, that would be a great one. I mean, that's obviously real estate backed as well, like highly defensive. I mean, we owned a hospital stock in the US, did extremely well. Hospital Corporation, yeah. Rego, HCA. Well, I mean, there was HealthScope in Australia that was recently taken over, but at one point in time, they were talking about spinning off their property assets into a property trust and then running the hospital business through the company. And but as it turned out, they ended up getting acquired. But as you point out, yeah, the, the biggest backing in many cases for these private hospital providers is actually the property. Thanks so much for uh, coming on, Michael. Really appreciate it. Where can people uh, find more information about what you do? Where are you active? I know you're active on Livewire because I've seen you. Yeah, no, so we've got a bit of a presence in the media, Livewire Markets, on, on Sky Business or Your Money. But um, if they need further information, more news or analysis, they can go to our website, so www medallionfinancial.com.au and they'll be able to find more articles that we've written or more media clips that we've done. But no, I appreciate you having us on this afternoon. It's good to catch up and I, I look forward to seeing how everything plays out for the rest of the year. All right, great. Thanks so much, Michael. <laughs> and that wraps up our sixth episode. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share with your friends and if you're feeling particularly generous, give us a rating on iTunes. I'm Michael Frazes, Portfolio Manager at Frazes Capital Partners. And if you'd like more information, our website is www.frazescapitalpartners.com. I hope you have a fantastic week.